societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time. The critically acclaimed author of Demons, Dolls and Milkshakes returns with 15 tales of horror and suspense with everything here is a nightmare. From zombies in the Old West to a young boy tempted by the devil. From vampires with romantic longing to an abandoned lighthouse haunted by vengeful spirit. From a serial killer getting unholy justice and haunted English race car. Nelson W. Piles invites you to explore the landscape of fear, suspense, and horror. Take his hand and hold on tight. Remember that whatever you find there, whatever you see, no matter what you might think it could be, know this. Everything here is a nightmare. By Nelson W. Piles. Available in paperback and Kindle at Amazon.com. By Burning Bowl Publishing. Hello, kiddies. Fall has fallen, and fall means the Wicked Library Halloween special is nearly here. It will be recorded live in front of a captive audience at Rickett and Beagle Books on October 17th from 7 to 9 p.m. And the show will air on October 31st, Halloween in other words. It's also going to be getting cold in our little village of the damned. So, in addition to the great prizes, tricks and treats and other wicked fun, we're doing a little something we're calling... Blankets and books. Bring a clean used blanket to sit on for story time, and then leave the blanket before you're released. I mean before you go. <laughs> Rickett and Beagle Books will be donating a book along with every blanket collected. And both items will be donated to the Hot Metal Bridge Faith community to distribute to the homeless. We hope you'll come by, but if you absolutely can't shamble down and still want to donate a blanket and maybe even a book of your own, drop me a line at librarian at thewickedlibrary.com and we'll get you more information. See you at Rickett and Beagle Books on the 17th, kiddies! <laughs> Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've 
been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Sell my soul for a beer, Kent Phillips yelled. A wave of anger surging through him. I swear I would. A nice, cold can, ice crystals clinging to it. He licked his lips and waited, but no one rushed forward to accept his offer. His words floated unheard across the fallow fields and fell to earth among weeds and sticker bushes. A beer would be nice, but what he really needed was a ride. He turned and looked behind him. The road stretched like a black ribbon through the Georgia countryside. Empty. No cars. Not a one. Nor had he seen any for hours. Miles from the nearest town or store, maybe even miles from the closest farmhouse, he couldn't have picked a more inconvenient place for his car to break down. About five minutes earlier, His Toyota Corolla had made a funny coughing noise. The warning lights had come on, and the engine had seized up and died with a shudder. Despite being a jet engine mechanic in the Air Force, he didn't know the first thing about piston engines and carburetors. He didn't know much about Georgia, either. A city boy from Chicago, he hadn't realized just how rural certain parts of the state were. He should have known better than to come on this trip, especially by himself. But a friend had told him about the Confederate prison park at Andersonville, and he wanted to see it. Unfortunately, Andersonville had been closed. Something about a college kid from Florida discovering a tunnel full of skeletons. Since he couldn't visit the park, he'd decided to drive on down to Plains, Georgia, to see the hometown of former President Jimmy Carter. He could have saved himself the drive. For Plains was a big disappointment. Wasn't much to see. Just a couple of filling stations and a few old stores. Their shelves stocked with cheap souvenirs and empty cans of Billy Beer. About the only thing of interest was the giant peanut statue with the familiar toothy grin that stood in front of Elmer's food and gas. And that was full of woodpecker holes. He'd left planes trying to salvage what was left of his weekend by taking a shortcut back to Robbins Air Force Base. Somewhere north of Americas, but still south of Fort Valley, he had gotten lost. The car's engine had died, and he had spent the better part of two hours walking. Kent spotted movement to his left and stopped. He watched, amused, as a scrawny gray cat 
slipped from beneath a sticker bush and cautiously approached him. The cat probably belonged to a farmer and was out hunting field mice. Here, kitty, kitty, he called, holding his hand out. He slowly squatted down, trying not to make sudden movements. What are you doing out here, hunting? He glanced at the barren field where the cat had been. Looks like you could have picked better grounds. The cat stopped while about ten feet away, sat down in the middle of the road, and began to groom itself. No wild cat here, Kent thought. This cat's comfortable around people. You wouldn't know where I could find a payphone, would you? He asked. Ignoring him, the cat lifted a leg and licked its butt. Kent laughed. No, I didn't think so. Reaching in his shirt pocket, he fumbled past the book of matches, picked up in planes, and pulled out a piece of beef jerky. You hungry? He asked the cat. Or did you get enough mice to eat? He unwrapped the dried beef and held it out. Come on, you can have it. At the sight of the food, the cat stopped licking and meowed. Kent smiled as it stood up and walked toward him. Yeah, I thought this would get your attention. Halfway to him, the cat stopped again, frozen in place with one paw raised in the air. What's the matter, stupid? Don't you like beef jerky? The cat stared past him, ignoring the tasty offering. Curious, Kent looked behind him. The road was empty. No dog, no people, not even another car. Nothing. Still, the gray cat must have seen something it didn't like, for it arched its back, hissed, and fled back beneath the bush. Kent stood up and looked around, wondering what had frightened the cat. He didn't see anything, only the empty fields, the road, and the gray horizon. His gaze lingered for a moment on the western sky, which was no longer gray, but black. He licked his finger and held it up. The wind blew from that direction. Storm coming, he said, wishing he'd stayed in the barracks. The approaching storm was probably no more than ten miles away and would be over top of him in less than an hour. Georgia thunderstorms could pack quite a punch, especially during the summer months. He needed to find shelter, but the only thing around was a few straggly pine trees, and they would make better lightning rods than protection. He shoved the beef jerky back into his pocket and continued walking. About a half an hour later, he paused to study the impending tempest. The thunderstorm stretched across the sky like a giant black curtain, providing an ebony backdrop for the trees and fields. The effect was eerie, but beautiful, for everything stood out in sharp contrast against the darkness. Gonna be a bad one, he said, his attention drawn to what looked like a whirling mass of leaves silhouetted against the storm. He watched, fascinated, as the leaves tossed about by the wind rose and fell, dissipated and regrouped again. His fascination gave way to a feeling of dread, however, when he realized that it was not leaves, but birds that he watched. What the hell? Kent was spellbound. He had never seen so many birds together at one time. Sparrows, pigeons, doves, even a pair of hawks. 
They dove and soared, clumped together, and broke apart, racing ahead of the storm, fleeing from it. The air filled with the flapping of their wings and their startled cries as they passed overhead. Nor was it just birds that fled the storm. He spotted twenty or thirty deer, their tails held high and warning, running through the fields. Snapping at the deer's heels were dogs. Lots of dogs. Hunting dogs, hounds, collies, pit bulls, and Doberman pinchers. They ran with tongues hanging and ears laid back. A chorus of yips, barks, and howls marked the motley pack as they passed out of sight. Close behind the dogs came rabbits, squirrels, and an assortment of other small animals. A lone horse galloped by, riderless, the reins of its bridle flapping behind it. Kent stared at the horse and wondered how a thunderstorm could cause such fear in so many different animals. A fire, yes, a tornado perhaps, but not a thunderstorm. Maybe there was something different about this particular storm. Something deadly. He might have allowed the storm to overtake him, just to see what was so unusual about it, had it not been for the animals. Knowing that their sense of danger was more acute than his, he trusted their judgment that the approaching darkness was something to be feared rather than welcomed. So, instead of waiting, he decided to keep moving. Kent jogged down the center of the road as fast as he could. He wasn't as quick as the deer, nor could he keep up with the dogs, but he did a damn good job of keeping distance between himself and the storm. Still, he was not a strong runner and would soon tire. He had to get someplace safe. But where? The thought had just crossed his mind when he spotted the roof of an old farmhouse about a mile up the road. Thank God. The house sat about 200 feet off the road and a yard reclaimed by weeds and kudzu vines. A tin-roofed wood structure with peeling paint and a sagging porch, the house perched above the ground on concrete blocks to allow the summer breeze to circulate beneath it. Whoever lived in the dwelling had moved out long ago, for all the windows were covered with weathered sheets of plywood. Fearful of falling through, he carefully climbed onto the rotted porch, testing each board before he took a step. Among the problems he did not need was a broken leg. The front door was unlocked and opened with a squeak. The smell of dust, mildew, and rodent droppings greeted him as he stepped across the threshold into the living room. The tiny room was bare and unpainted, with strips of cardboard tacked to the walls for insulation. On the eastern wall stood a brick fireplace, probably the only method of heating the house. Not exactly the Hilton, is it? He said aloud to himself. Two doorways led off to the living room, one to a bedroom, the other opened onto the kitchen. He checked out the bedroom first, found nothing of interest, and backtracked through the living room to the kitchen. Spiderwebs hung like silken chandeliers from the kitchen ceiling their beauty marred only by the long-dead insects caught in their gossamer strands. A crude wooden counter ran along the back wall, centered beneath a pair of boarded-up windows. On the counter sat a large candle, which had melted into a pyramid-shaped blob of wax. 
since there were no electrical outlets in the kitchen. Kent assumed there had never been a refrigerator or dishwasher. None of the modern conveniences that made life easy. In one corner of the room, a discolored patch of floor marked where a wood-burning stove had once stood. To the right of the counter was another door. He tried the door, found it locked, slipped the deadbolt back and opened it. Fresh air rushed in as he looked out upon a backyard waist-high in weeds. A large pile of rotted wood and sheets of tin, all that was left of a barn, rose above the sea of weeds. Halfway between the barn and the house, her rusty pump stood like a silent sentinel over the cistern. Kent heard a rustling sound and caught a glimpse of a fleeing rabbit. Overhead, a flock of crows called loudly to each other as they raced ahead of the storm. Gonna be a bad one. Suddenly, the tiny farmhouse he had chosen for shelter didn't look quite as sturdy as it had moments before. He remembered the flying house from the Wizard of Oz and wondered if he too would end up somewhere over the rainbow. Just follow the yellow brick road, he said, closing the door. He had just turned the lock when he heard the front door bang shut. Figuring that the wind must have caught it and not wanting the door to be torn off its hinges, he hurried into the living room to close it. To his surprise, he found that it wasn't the wind that had slammed the door. He had company. The woman stood with her back to the door, breathing hard. She wore cut-off blue jeans, white tennis shoes, and a dirty gray t-shirt. Her hair was blonde, and her skin darkly tanned with a scattering of freckles. She was probably in her thirties, but could have been older. He noticed scratches on her legs and the left side of her face. You're hurt, he said. My horse threw me, the woman replied. She turned and tried to lock the door. After a few seconds of fumbling unsuccessfully, she looked back at him. Don't just stand there. Help me. Getting over the surprise of having an unexpected house guest, Kent crossed the room. Let me try it, he said. He struggled with the lock, but had no better luck than she did. The door had warped with age, and the deadbolt no longer lined up with the door frame. Hurry, she said, her voice urgent. He wasn't sure why she wanted the door locked, but from the tone of her voice, it seemed like a good idea. As he fought the lock, the room grew dark. The storm had reached them. For God's sake, hurry, she shouted. Here, Kent said. I'll put my weight against it while we try to lock it. He let go of the lock and shoved with all his strength against the door. At the same time, the woman twisted on the latch. After several attempts, the deadbolt finally slipped into place. They had just gotten the door locked when something crashed against it from the other side. They both jumped back, startled. Kent started to say something, but the woman held a finger up to her lips, motioning him to silence. They stood as still as statues, listening as something sniffed at the door and scratched to get in. A dog, Kent thought. But then the doorknob jiggled back and forth. Not a dog, a person. He started to go to the door, but she grabbed his right arm. He turned, and her look of fear held him in place. 
An uneasy moment passed, but the doorknob stopped moving. The scratching also stopped. Kent, realizing that he had been holding his breath, let out a sigh of relief. Are you in trouble? He whispered. Someone after you? The woman let go of his arm and smiled. No, darling, I'm not in trouble, and no one is after me. Then who was at the door? She stepped back and looked him up and down. You're not from around here, are you? He shook his head. I'm in the Air Force, stationed at Warner Robins. My name is Kent. Soldier boy, huh? She smiled again. I should have known. Probably a Yankee, I bet. Not that it matters to me one way or another. Lord knows a Yankee's just as good as a Southern boy when it comes to taking care of business, if you know what I mean. My name's Beverly, Beverly Sanders. I'm originally from Waycross, but I've been living hereabouts for the past few years. She smiled again, a little mischievously. I'm a working girl. The shock must have shown on his face, for Beverly burst out laughing. (laughs) Honey, don't look so surprised, he said. You're a hooker? Hooker's a Yankee word. I prefer lady of the evening. Don't worry, I don't bite. Not unless you pay me to. As for your question, it wasn't a who that was at the door. It was a what. I don't understand, Kent said. Judgment day, sweetie. The end of the world. At least for some folks. Old Luke's out walking around. Brought all his hates with him. That's what spooked my horse. Spooked all the other animals, too. She paused and looked at him funny. Land's sakes, haven't you ever read the Bible? He shook his head. Beverly laughed. (laughs) Now, don't this just beat all. A southern whore teaching the Bible to a Yankee. Anyway, folks about these parts have been talking about the end of the world for a long time. Old Maribel Johnson even got herself a poem about it. Loves to recite it on Sundays. Let's see if I can remember how it goes. She thought for a moment, then recited the poem. Dark of the moon in the month of June, old Luke will come out to play. He'll lay the houses low, and death he will sow as he carries the sinners away. So pray for your souls and keep all your doors and windows closed, and maybe he'll pass you by. Because in the dark of the moon in the month of June, many a sinner will cry. Who's old Luke? he asked when she had finished with the poem. She again gave him a funny look. You must be dumber than I thought. Old Luke, Lucifer, the devil himself. It was Kent's turn to laugh. (laughs) What a crock. It's not the end of the world, it's just a storm. Suddenly, as if on cue, they heard the sound of rain hitting the tin roof. He looked up. See, what did I tell you? Just a storm. Beverly also looked up. Maybe it is, maybe it ain't. The room grew very dark as the storm moved over them. Kent remembered the melted candle in the kitchen and went to get it. Luckily, he still had the pack of matches with him. The sky had opened up with a torrential downpour by the time he returned with the candle. The noise of the rain hitting the tin roof was deafening. In the distance, 
thunder boomed. Beverly still stood in the center of the room, staring up at the ceiling. Kent started to say something, but was interrupted by the sound of water splattering against flat stones. He turned and saw rain pouring down the chimney into the fireplace. Mixed with the rain were tiny objects that bounced and skittered across the wood floor. He thought they were hailstones at first, but then one of them rolled up against his foot. Kent looked down and saw a tiny frog laying on its back, legs kicking, trying desperately to right itself. Curious, he stepped closer to the fireplace and saw dozens of frogs on the floor, with hundreds more spilling out of the chimney. Will you look at this? It's raining frogs, he said, shocked. Beverly quit looking at the ceiling and stared at the floor instead. He tried not to step on any frogs as he approached the fireplace, but that was nearly impossible. The floor was covered with them. Most of the frogs were dead, but some were still alive, their bodies broken from hitting the bricks that lined the bottom of the fireplace. Nor was it just frogs that fell from the sky. Mixed in with the tiny amphibians were body parts. Human body parts. On the hearth in front of the fireplace lay a man's hand, severed at the wrist with an inch or so of bone protruding from the bloody flesh. A few inches away from the hand lay a foot, still encased in a woman's black shoe. Beyond that, an eyeball was wedged against the pale belly of a frog. Oh, dear Jesus, Kent said, his stomach heaving. He jumped back, covering his nose and mouth with his hand to keep from retching. More body parts fell down the chimney. An ear, part of a face, intestines. More frogs hit the stones with a sickening thud, and the rain that fell from the sky wasn't rain, but blood. The blood poured down the chimney, splattered dark red against the floor and walls. Kent backed away from the fireplace and nearly collided with Beverly. Outside, the thunder grew closer. Judgment Day, Beverly whispered staring in horror at what was spilling out of the chimney. There has to be a logical explanation for this, Kent said, though he could think of none. Maybe there was a plane crash, a meteor explosion. That would explain the body parts. But what about the blood? A hundred planes could blow up and you wouldn't have that much blood. Whatever the explanation, it would have to keep for suddenly someone knocked on the door, turned the knob, and tried to get in. A tingle of fear walked down Kent's spine as he turned toward the door. His legs trembled. The knocking grew louder, desperate, frantic. The whole room seemed to shake from the pounding. Whoever it was, they weren't going away this time. A minute passed. Two. Kent was afraid to move, but knew that he had to do something. He set the candle down on the floor, took a deep breath, and inched toward the door. Kent, don't, Beverly warned. He reached the door, placed his palm against it, felt the wood tremble from the knocks. 
Someone was out there, standing just on the other side of the door. Go away, Kent said, his voice choking. Go away and leave us alone. The knocking didn't let up. Go away, he shouted. The knocking stopped. A moment of silence passed, and then a man's voice came from the other side of the door. Help me. Please help me. Open the door. Kent gasped. Someone was out there in the storm, in the rain of blood and things too ghastly to mention. He grabbed the doorknob, fumbled with the lock to open it. No! Beverly screamed. She ran across the room, flung herself against the door. Kent tried to push her out of the way. Someone's out there, he yelled. He needs our help. Don't open this door. I can't just leave him out there. You must. The voice from the other side of the door spoke again, softer. Beverly? Is that you, Bev? Beverly froze, her eyes wide. It's me, Bev. Reverend Atkins. Open the door and let me in. Go away, she whispered, her voice so low that Kent could barely hear her. Kent tried to pull her away from the door so he could open it, but she wouldn't budge. Beverly, it's someone you know. Reverend. We have to let him in. No, she said, fighting him. Outside, the thunder grew closer. One steady boom after another. Each equally spaced apart. Each exactly like the last. But louder. He heard the thunder, felt the house tremble from it, and wondered how it could be spaced so evenly apart. Of course, it couldn't be. Not unless it was something else. Boom! 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 Terror gripped Kent by the balls as he realized he wasn't listening to thunder. They were footsteps. Something big was coming down the road. Something really fucking big. With the footsteps came an odd reddish glow, like a fire that seeped through the cracks in the walls and floated down the chimney. The glow lifted some of the darkness in the room, bathed them in the color of blood. Kent grabbed Beverly's arms and pulled her away from the door. For God's sake, open the door. He's a reverend. He's your friend. He pushed her out of the way, turned the lock, and pulled open the door. Boom! Boom! Beverly screamed at him, tried to stop him. He's not a friend. He's a customer. The words sunk in like a knife, but it was too late. He already had the door opened. Reverend Atkins stood on the porch. He was scarecrow thin and drenched in blood, his short hair plastered to his scalp. Around him, the porch was littered with dead frogs and chunks of gore that had fallen from the sky. Thank you, the Reverend said, his lower lip trembling. Oh, thank you. He started to step across the threshold, but something fell from the sky 
gray and slimy. It was as thick as an oak tree and a mile long. A giant serpent that shot out of the eerie glowing sky and wrapped around the Reverend's body, snatching him off the porch. Reverend Atkins kicked and screamed as he was lifted high into the sky, dancing like a kite on a string. Before he disappeared, Kent saw that it wasn't a serpent, but a tongue that had grabbed the good reverend. A giant tongue. The tongue of old Luke himself. Kent felt his sanity start to slip away as he stood in the doorway, looking upon the face of Satan. The face was a festering mass of boiling flesh, as wide as a mountain, with eyes that were two glowing orbs of brimstone. Around the devil's face hovered his minions, creatures too hideous to describe, with leathery bat wings, fangs, and claws. Kent gazed upon these things and screamed. He was still screaming when Beverly grabbed him from behind and pulled him back into the room. She pushed past him, slammed the door shut, and locked it. You stupid fool! She shouted, turning on him. Old Luke knows we're in here now. We're next! He shook his head, tried to rid his mind of the ghastly vision. Doors locked. He can't get in. Beverly laughed. We're talking about Satan. He doesn't need a key to get in. He'll make his own door. No sooner had she spoke than something brushed against the door, testing it, perhaps checking for a weakness. Kent shuddered as he thought about the tongue and imagined it licking against the brittle wood, searching for a way to get in, looking for them. Outside, the footsteps had stopped and the night had grown strangely quiet. The bloody rain no longer poured down the chimney. But it's still raining. I can hear it on the roof. He turned and looked at the fireplace. If the rain hadn't stopped, something must be blocking the chimney. Oh my god. Ken picked up the candle and hurried across the room. The floor was slick with blood and the bodies of frogs. He stepped on the frogs, felt their bones crunched like potato chips. Twice he slipped, almost fell. He reached the fireplace and dropped to his knees. Setting the candle on the floor, he used both hands to push aside the dead frogs and body parts that had piled up. Only a few drops of blood fell down the chimney. He stuck his head into the fireplace, lifted the candle high above him. The tiny flame didn't illuminate all of the chimney, but it lit up enough area to see that the shaft was blocked solid guided by hundreds of thin, translucent tentacles, like whiskers on a cat. The giant tongue crept spider-like down the chimney. At the tongue's very tip were eyes. Dozens of eyes, red and glowing, with vertical pupils like those of a snake. The eyes saw the candle. Saw Kent. Their guidance no longer needed, The tentacles quit probing the walls, and the tongue shot down the chimney at incredible speed. Kent screamed and grabbed the handle of the lever that closed the flue. He prayed that it wasn't rusted in place, pulled the handle, 
and closed off the chimney. He heard a wet, squishy sound as the tongue hit the metal plate, followed by a demonic shriek of rage from outside the house. He scooted back out of the fireplace, stood up, and started across the room to where Beverly stood. He was halfway to her when the house shook, and there came the tortured scream of nails being ripped from boards, followed by the snapping of wooden beams. Kent froze and watched in horror as the roof of the house was completely torn away. Nothing remained. Not even the rafters. Blood rained down on him. Run! he yelled. Though there was nowhere to go. He had only taken two steps when the giant tongue fell from the sky like a coil of loose rope and landed at his feet. Kent tried to jump over the tongue, but it grabbed him. Like a giant anaconda, it wrapped around him, squeezed him, crushed the breath from his lungs. He tried to call for help, but only a soft hissing of air escaped his mouth. The tongue slithered across his body, its tip rising off the floor to dance before him like a cobra. The eyes stared at him, studied him. Kent was terrified but he was unable to turn away. He screamed in agony and wet himself as one of the eel-like tentacles caressed the left side of his neck, searing his flesh like a branding iron. Then, suddenly, quite unexpectedly, the tongue released him. He fell to the floor and grabbed his neck. Rows of blisters were already forming where the tentacle touched him piercing scream reminded him that the danger was far from over. The tongue had let go of him, but it was closing in on Beverly. Beverly ran to the front door and tried to yank it open, but the tongue wrapped around her legs and tripped her. Help me, she screamed, beating on the giant appendage with her fists. Kent got to his feet and staggered to Beverly's aid. He kicked at the tongue and tried to pull it off of her, but he wasn't strong enough. If only he had a gun. Please, please don't let him take me, she begged as the tongue started to slowly recoil back into the sky, lifting her legs off the floor. Kent tried to force his hands between the tongue and her legs, but he couldn't. Beverly, hysterical, screamed again and grabbed hold of his shirt. Why me? Why not you? Why didn't he take you? She looked at his face, desperately searching for an answer. His shirt ripped as the tongue of old Luke snatched Beverly Sanders up through the roofless house, carrying her into the sky. To him. Kent heard her scream once more, a long, piercing cry of terror and pain. Silence followed, his body trembling but he stood with his face lifted to the pouring rain and watched as something fell from the sky. A tiny metal cylinder streaked from the sky like a meteor and struck the floor near his feet, its impact softened by the bodies of the dead frogs. Kent stared at the can, saw what it was, and started to laugh softly at first but then 
so hard his whole body shook. He remembered the offer he made earlier in the day, said only in jest, but obviously taken seriously. His fingers went to the blisters on his neck, and he laughed even harder. He had been touched by the devil himself, marked, his soul bought and paid for, cursed to an eternity of brimstone and hellfire. The deal had been sealed with a kiss. The purchase price was the 12-ounce can of Budweiser that lay on the floor, ice crystals still clinging to it. Sell my soul for a beer, he had said, and the devil had taken him up on it. Kent doubled over with laughter, the mirth of a doomed man. Even as the tongue fell toward him, he kept laughing. Wiping a tear from his eye, he looked up and said, Make it a light. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Today's episode featured a story by Owl Going Back, sealed with a kiss. If you'd like more information on Owl and his work, please visit owlgoingback.com and follow him on Twitter at o.goingback. Artwork for today's show was created by John Towers. If you'd like more information on John and his work, please visit stigmatastudios.com and follow him on Twitter at Johnny Axe. That's J-O-N-N-Y-A-X-X. Big thanks to KT Jane for a great story last week. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, shadowsatthedoor.com, Rickert and Beagle Books, HorrorMade.com, and SanitariumMagazine.com. Please share the terror. Share the show and help us grow. Tell a friend or maybe that weird guy that hangs out at the cemetery about us. Aside from that, the best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes, Stitcher, and or tune in wherever you listen to the show. Ratings are free and they mean a lot to us. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, and more. You can sign up for that at thewickedlibrary.com. And now, Owl Going Back. So I don't want to take a ton of your time. I know you're a busy guy. I wanted to take some time to talk to you about the story that you sent in, which was a fantastic story sealed with a kiss. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also maybe ask you a few questions about writing, because a lot of the folks that listen to the show are other writers. And whenever I have someone that's been nominated for the Stoker twice, won once and won a Nebula, I think that you might have something to, to offer in terms of writing advice here and there. Well, no, I, di- I didn't win a Nebula. I was a nominee for the Nebula, but I didn't win it. Oh, okay. You know, you get nominated and you cry when the awards are over and you don't win. But, you know, it's fun. Just so that the fact that they allow me in the same room with these other writers is wonderful. <laughs> I, I never expected that in my life. I yeah. really didn't. So Sealed with a Kiss, it's a great little deal with the devil's story. I thought it was really well written. And there's that opening line. He wants to sell his soul for a beer. And then you end the story with the deal being called. And And I thought it was great because... I don't know whether you did it on purpose or whether it's just that I wasn't a very good reader for this particular story, but I forgot the opening line by the end. I was right there with Kent when he's like, why is this guy after me? Well, the editor that I submitted a story to had forgotten the opening line, too. He had to go back and read it like, was that in the beginning of the story? Because, <laughs> you know, you, you don't catch that line because it's just it's so you ease into the story and you're more worried about what's going on. You don't pay attention to that first line. Yeah. 
And it's so common. You hear people say, oh, I'd sell my soul for this or that. But uh, I thought it was really clever that that's how he ends up getting called at the end. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I'll tell you one of the other things I really enjoyed about the story, and I don't know that everybody catches this, but you have one sentence in there. It's almost invisible to anybody who reads it. But if you know what it's there for, it it like doubles the impact of the story, in my opinion. And that's where you make reference to uh, a line from your short story in Phantoms of the Night. Last Man in Line, I believe, is the name of the story. Right. And that's about the two guys that are on the trip to the cemetery. I like to do that a lot of my stories. I like to put a line or cross-reference just to see if people have checked out the other stories. And it, it's fun that way, kind of all the time, all in together. I've done that with a, a novel, Crota, where I've used the town Logan or mentioned it in another book or a character from one story ends up getting mentioned briefly in another story. I love the time, man, just to see if people, you know, catch it. I think it's a lot of fun to know that they've actually paid attention to it. Yeah, it's kind of like seeing what, what you can get away with and what kind of fun you can have with the story. I, I mean, see all the kids came about because I lived in Georgia for six years and I used to drive these lonely rural roads because I was a hobbyist. I collected beer cans and I'd go to old dumps and just look at old farm sites. And there's some really backwoods places there where you're, they're very lonely. I found a lot of abandoned farm sites and the, the, the red clay roads, or, you know, the, Georgia has that funny red dirt they have mm -hmm. and, yeah, it's Bible Belt area, so you get to thinking about all the things like good and evil, God and devil. So, that's, you know, it came about from a lot of driving around in lonely areas. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, and, you know, I should say thank you for your service. Whenever I was doing my research, I, I found out that you share some commonalities with your character from this story and that you worked in the Air Force. So thank you very much for that. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, I, I actually got out of uh, of military in Georgia. And then I opened up a bar and restaurant right across the highway from the main gate of the base that I got out of. So I had officers coming in and calling me, sir, which was a kind of a funny switch. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. You had built-in customers that already liked you and knew you, I guess. Yeah. You had quite a few of the air crew come in and I was kind of like the oasis away from home because here I was, you know, I was science fiction geek and, you know, horror geek. And these guys were in uh, kind of in the middle of Georgia. And so it was nice. They could come in and talk about stuff they loved and hadn't, uh, you know, engaged in conversation before because Georgia is kind of like, you know, if you were in Georgia, you had to love fishing and then uh, the Georgia Bulldogs. And if, otherwise you're you know pretty much out of luck. Yeah. So how did you get into uh, working at the cemetery there? From what I read, you were kind of a taffophile before that. You enjoyed going to the cemeteries just kind of for the peace and quiet. But how did how did you get hooked up with, uh, with a job there? Well, I, I knew the Sexton, and he was a fan of my books. And we occasionally hung out together and went to places like St. Augustine or Savannah to visit the cemeteries there. Mm -hmm. And one of the caretakers decided to retire. And he said, how would you like to be a you know, caretaker at a cemetery? You'd be in a graveyard during the day, maybe have some story ideas, and you can write about it at night. Yeah, And, you know, it was a good, great health care. It's a government job. So, I, yeah, I said, yes, couldn't turn that down. <laughs> Absolutely. So do you get a lot of good ideas just the, from the peace and quiet or just from the atmosphere or how does that work for you? From the atmosphere, I mean, you see a lot of weird things. I mean, you know, I've probably put more uh, white men in the ground than Sitting Bull. So I'm a mighty warrior <laughs> and I've dug up quite a few. And <laughs> That's tremendous. Yeah, there's always there's always something going on. I mean, you just never know what's going to happen in the cemetery, and you know, it's, it's kind of the, the world that you don't see in graveyards. I mean, you've got the the people going through a terrible, terrible grief and having funeral services, and uh, twenty feet away, you got the people working there telling jokes. I mean, because they they see it every day, and they see it so often. They, everybody's got this kind of a twisted sense of humor. I guess it's a cushioning effect because yeah. we try to keep a keep a cushion between us and the family and not get make it too personal. 
right. with what we see going on. So have you ever had anything that's happened to you there that, uh, I mean, you, you don't work at night then. I guess you're always during the daytime. I've been out there quite a few times at night. Oh. Halloween night, we usually, a couple of us will spend the night out there sitting on a hill, uh, just waiting for people to sneak into the cemetery to get scared. And we just <laughs> sneak up on them and shine flashlights on them and scare the tar out of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a fun Halloween, actually. It is. And we have a lot of movie shoots out there. Uh, we do a Moonlight History walking tour once a month on a Friday closest to the full moon. It's a two-hour tour. And you go through, you know, we've got 100 acres there. And it's the oldest gated community in Orlando. We date back to 1880. So we get, you know, talk about who's who and the famous people buried there. And it's uh, beautiful at nighttime out there, especially in the full moon. Uh, we got another group that comes in and does a uh, paranormal investigation about twice a year, and they bring people in and bring in the meters and the flashlights, and they basically go ghost hunting. That's cool. A lot of movie shoots, too. A lot of movies have been filmed there at night. Cause we got uh, three colleges in the area that have film schools in them, and so oh, or, yeah. there's somebody always filming out there. That's true. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I have a friend of mine who runs a podcast down there called History Goes Bump, and uh, I know she's a Taffa fossil. I'm sure she's been in your cemetery before. Very possible. Yeah, we get a, we get a lot of them in there. A lot of people for finding graves, and a lot of people. We get joggers. I get bicycle riders, and it's really pretty. We get the highest and lowest locations in Orlando. A lot of beautiful oak trees, and people just come in there, and you're like, "This is kind of creepy in a cemetery." No, it's the we're close to downtown, and it's you know it's kind of almost like a rural setting in the middle of the city. Yeah, it's it's kind of a park like during the daytime at least. Very much so. I had a lady today was like, you know, was walking by the cemetery. She said, are we allowed to come in and like walk or jog through the cemetery? I'm like, yeah, well, all the time people come in here. And she was surprised that we, she was even allowed in. I said, yeah, it's a pretty area. A lot of people come in there. Some people sit and read a book or they'll just sit on a bench somewhere and just relax. So I have to ask, working there at night, have you ever had anything strange or odd happen to you? Uh, yeah, there's stuff you really can't explain or things you see and you kind of take a second look at. I mean, uh, we it's it's common in the office to hear doors open and close, to hear footsteps. I've had uh, somebody sneeze behind me, turn around, and you know, nobody's there. We've had you know cold spells and things that you see out the corner of your eye. But yeah, uh, I've had people on the weekends uh, didn't want to come back on the weekends. I had one college kid, his girlfriend got scared in the office and took off running. And yeah, <laughs> things happen you can't explain, and some are humorous and. Sometimes you might think you see a shadow or a person standing there. You turn around and it's like, did I just see that? It's not uncommon. Uh, when we do the history tours and stuff, we don't talk about it because, you know, government, you don't want to say, hey, this place is haunted. <laughs> right. And then somebody's like, you know, my grandma's buried here. You can't say that. Yeah. But it's, a lot of people consider it to be most haunted spot in Central Florida. And, you know, we, we've seen stuff and heard stuff. All of us have. We're just kind of like, okay, that, that was kind of odd. Yeah. Well, that that has to be good fodder for, for stories and for writing. Is there anybody else that on your staff that writes like you do, or are you the only one? The section's done some articles for cemetery magazines, but they mm -hmm. were nonfiction articles about the cemetery itself. Yeah. I'm, I'm the only crazy out there. I'm the only <laughs> one looking for the spooky story. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for that, because, the, you know, we always like a good spooky story. So thanks for, for creating some of them. Cemeteries are fun. I mean, you know, it's, it's a tough job. It's a very physically demanding job, especially in the summer when it's brutally hot down down in Florida in the summer. But, you know, there's, there's those moments when you're just like, wow, I'm in a cemetery. How cool is this? I've got 80,000 graves here and just all these crops of wonderful ideas that can work in the stories. Yeah, absolutely. 
So what advice do you have for newer and emerging writers who are maybe just now starting to get into writing? And, and uh, I, I know quite a few people that are, you know, they've just gotten their first piece published or they're working on getting their first piece published. Is there any advice you have for, for newbies? Oh, there's a lot of advice. I mean, uh, read as much as possible, not just fiction, read nonfiction so you can work it in the stories. Uh, the, Andre Norton, who was a grandmaster of fantasy, gave me the advice of subscribing to Locust Magazine when I first started out because it, it does cover the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre really well. You can get some useful information. And, you know, go to conventions. Go to places like the World Fantasy Conventions or even the regional conventions. Shake a few hands and get to know people because a lot of times it's who you know. I met a gentleman who was a, a new writer in the World's Fantasy Convention in Seattle back in 89. And a year later, he was an editor, and he turned around and bought like nine stories from me. Wow. So, you know, you just never – you never know. Yeah. Have you ever met any – write every day. Just Have you ever met anybody that, uh, that you know, you've, you've always wanted to meet, anybody that you're a big fan of that you've had the opportunity to get to know through be, being a writer? That's probably the best part about being a writer. I've met a lot of my childhood heroes. I mean, the people I grew up reading, uh, uh, people like Andre Norton, Ray Bradbury, uh, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, which is I bought as when I was a child. At, when I was nine years old, my first 50 cents allowance, I spent it on Famous Monsters, and, and I've become friends with Forrest before he passed. And you know, There are a lot of great people that I, I really admire I've got to meet. Yeah, I, I do a lot of conventions with media guests, and I've met a lot of actors who are in the horror genre and it's it's wonderful you, you kind of pinch yourself because that's all the people you know and you go like wow these are friends neil gaiman you know to meet somebody of that that caliber that quality mm-hmm. it, it really is best part and when you hear the people like when you in the room and hearing like uh ray bradbury or harlan ellison speak it's almost like a religious experience because yeah. they really are amazing people yeah, harlan ellison i'll tell you that is a hard-working guy it is he you know He's hard, a hardworking guy. He's a fantastic writer. He's not a scary thing, and he will flat tell you, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. He's, he's one of the nicest people in the world. Uh, he picks on me terribly. I love him. I was last time I saw him, we were in California, and then we got in a car wreck together. So you know, there's some wonderful Harlan stories out here. I mean, wow. Well, I'm glad you're okay. We're okay. It was funny because I was in Hollywood, and Harlan had to get to the this uh, screenwriting conference, and. Uh, we sent him on in the cab with his wife, Susan. I stayed here to make sure the, the tow truck towed the car, his car. And when it showed up, I didn't have any information. And they're trying to ask me all these questions in the AAA. I'm, and they think I'm Mr. Ellison. So I'm pretending <laughs> to have amnesia from the accident. And they're like, well, what's your phone number? And I'm like, oh, I just don't know. I hit my head so hard. direct, I can't remember. <laughs> and I was so scared not getting his car towed and have Harlan mad, mad at me. Yeah. But I did this command performance on a sidewalk. And above me, I could see the sign for the, the Hollywood sign in the hills. <laughs> so That's tremendous. Somewhere out there, there's a tow truck driver who thinks Harlan Ellison is a six-foot-two Indian. <laughs> That's tremendous. <laughs> That's a good story. It, it was fun. My, my Probably my greatest acting moment ever yeah <laughs> well you're tied into a lot of these writers and and folks in the industry what do you see as the the future of the industry because there's a lot of things that are in flux with traditional publishing and self-publishing and ebooks versus traditional books i mean do you have any opinion on any of that you know, I'd probably be the worst guy to ask. I mean, I was dead set against ebooks for so many years. I was like kicking and screaming because I'm traditionalist. I love paper yeah. books, but now I've got a few books on Kindle, and I see why people like them. And 
you know, now when you have computers and you can actually turn the page of electronic book, that's just really cool. Yeah. So I don't know. I, you know, I'm always like I'm following the, the everybody else's lead because there's you never know what's going to happen because the industry's changing so much. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, because five years ago, if you would ask me, I would have said, "Oh, don't do self-publishing because you'll never be in bookstores and blah blah blah." But the bookstores are closing. Yeah. I mean, so self-publishing now, you can make as much as you can traditionally, and if not more. I mean, so who knows what's going to be around the corner? The, the electronic industry and all this technology is changing every other day. It really is. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and, it, and you're right about that because, I mean, I myself and, and friends of mine that uh, love the old – having the book in your hands and having the paper in your hands. But, I mean, I love my Kindle too because it weighs next to nothing. And <laughs> if, I, if I finish a book, I can get another book in five minutes. Yeah, and you could have an entire library and just this little device that fits in your hand, and you're not lugging around 50 cases of books everywhere you go. It really is. It's amazing. Just move one of your friends who's a book lover, and, and you'll be like, dude, you need a Kindle. Seriously. Exactly. And now, the, like, I have the la- I, don't, I don't have the Kindle device itself, but I have a laptop, and you can download a Kindle software for free, and you've got the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is, there is definitely a – I mean, and you know, there's definitely a different experience to actually having – the book in your hands. And, you know, I mean, I, I picked up uh, several old books whenever, you know, we first started talking and I was going to do a story of yours. I was like, well, I should read some of his short stories. And uh, so I picked up a, a few of the anthologies and it was cool to, to go back to, I haven't held a traditional book like that in a long time. And I was like, I miss this. This is actually kind of cool. So. Now what they need to do is have a little bottle of old book smell that I can <laughs> spray on a Kindle. That's and right. I would be happy. <laughs> It's a smell. I, I miss the libraries. Oh yeah, that that there is a certain smell that a book gets after it's you know that pulp after it's been there for yep. ten fifteen years, and I love that too. I do. I've got old pulp science fiction magazines. I just love holding them, and you got that smell. It's that musty old ancient time smell. Yeah, definitely. I mean that you know, and you mentioned Bradbury earlier. That's kind of one of the things that I think of whenever I'm reading those old books because I used to read a lot of Bradbury from the library on those old pulp books. So. Yeah, it's just good stuff. He's an amazing storyteller. He is. I mean, he's like no other. I mean, he just has that way with words. I'm kind of I consider myself like a McDonald's type writer. I'm a hack writer. And then you have these <laughs> genius words. They're, they're, they're stories like poetry. Just amazing. I met Ray Bradbury at uh, the World Science Fiction Convention in Atlanta back around 86. And he's the only writer I ever stood in line for for an autograph. And I stood for two hours, was almost <laughs> to the man, and they cut it off. Oh, they cut kidding. the line off because he had to do a panel. So I grabbed my little convention book. I said, look, he's been signing for two hours. He's got to do a panel. He's got to go to the bathroom. So I found the closest bathroom to where this panel is going to be. I stood in there by the sink. And sure enough, he walks in. He uses the bathroom. He comes over, cleans his hand. I hand him a paper towel. I said, Mr. Bradbury, can I please have your autograph? So he said, well, not in the bathroom. He steps outside. I'm getting my book signed. And all my friends are terribly jealous who stood in line for two hours with me because they didn't get a signed book because they weren't smart enough to know <laughs> where to sabotage the guy. <laughs> That's tremendous. Yeah, I, I think I waited for about uh, my friend uh, and I. We There's like a lecture series that they do here in Pittsburgh uh, where they bring writers in to talk about writing and et cetera. And Neil Gaiman was here and we waited for, I think, about an hour and a half to to see him and uh, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. We got about five minutes with him, but he was such a nice guy. He is. He's one of those true writers. Yeah, he's like a Bradbury. He's got all these wonderful stories and stuff to share. He's also a very good actor too. He did a one act stage 
performance here at the International Conference was a fantastic in the art, and I was really amazed at his abilities as an actor. Which story was it? Uh, well, they had a competition. It wasn't one of his. Oh, okay. It was a little one-act play with him and another person where he's being held up and he's robbing a person for of their memories, you know, <sighs> you know, and taking the memories out of them by, yeah. by gun, by force. That's so I was just awesome. like, wow, this guy can act, too. I mean, this is amazing because most writers are very, you know, insecure about getting up there like that, but he, he was brilliant. <laughs> I, when I first started out, I'd have to get in front of an audience, and I was gonna, always scared scared to death. And I, I determined my trick was I get angry at everybody inside because <laughs> uh, it's easier for me to control f- anger than it is to f- control fear. Yeah. So I kind of walk in basically hating everybody, and I can get through anything. Well, that that's actually really good advice because I know I talk to a lot of uh, a lot of writers that go to these conventions and, and feel very awkward. So just be angry. They haven't bought yeah. your book yet, so you have to be angry at all of them. Well, I get on that whole war path thing. It's like, I've been in the woods on you without food and water for three days. What are you people done? And I get that whole thing inside of me that, you know, you can't, you know, put me down because I've done all this. Right. And I'm angry on the war path. And I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of playing powwow music in my head kind of thing. That's awesome. But, you know, I don't have the anger in the face. But yeah. on the inside, it gets me from getting the butterflies. No, that's really cool. So I asked you what advice you had for newbies. What advice do you have for folks that have been doing this for a while that, uh, you know, have reached a certain level where they feel comfortable and they know their voice? What do you what do you have for them that may help them take themselves to the next level? Just keep doing it because, you know, writers belong to the people. They belong to their readers. They belong to their fans. I mean, we're we're sharing stories. We're sharing bits of wisdom in what we write. We're, you know, stepping on soapboxes. You know, maybe maybe we're inspiring people. I remember, you know, I had a man write me about a, a paragraph I put in a book in my book, Shaman Moon, and it meant so much to him that he would get up every morning and recite it. He actually pen, wrote it down and pinned it above above his dresser mirror. And then his brother saw that, and he liked it so much, he pinned that passage above the mirror. And when I read this, what he what he sent me, the passage, I don't even remember writing it in the book. I know I did, but it was just something I threw in there, but it inspired two people. Yeah. So writers should keep doing it because we're, you know, it's almost like we have an obligation. We have a, a service to be good writers, to continue it. And it's, you know, people are going through some tough times out there in the world. If you can take somebody who's having some tough times because of the economy, because of the job situation, for whatever, and put them in a story for 5, 10, 20 minutes and make them forget their problems, then you've done something really wonderful. That's excellent. I, I you know, that's, I couldn't have said that better. I mean, I feel that way entirely that you never know whenever you're going to reach someone that, you know, your story or, or getting that release from, whatever they're dealing with might make a, a huge difference to them. I have a gentleman who said he took my novel Crota and taught himself how to read because when he graduated high school, he couldn't read. And he used my novel to read this. And he was from the same small town that I was. And because what I had done as a writer inspired him so much, he became a deputy sheriff. That's to awesome. serve the people. That's amazing. That. That and I've got – I actually have my books being used at the Orange County Correctional Facility in Orlando. They didn't even know I was local, and they sent me this thing through my publisher. It came back to me, and they were using my books in a youthful offender program. So I called them up. I said, well, guys, i got books where I kill people in horrible ways. They go, yeah, but you're doing the whole traditional storytelling thing. You respect your elders, you respect your land, and these kids are getting something out of it. Yeah. So they had an eight-week program where they're using my books, and the kids at the end of the program, they kept their nose clean. They wrote a report about what they had read in my story, and they were rewarded by their families coming into jail with a home-cooked meal and having this little celebration. 
So by reading some of my junk, these kids who are in jail for, you know, stupidity basically are rewarded by home cooked meal while they're behind bars. Wow. That's that's pretty incredible. Yeah, that meant a lot. I mean, something like that. I mean, I've got books that are being rented out of truck stops. And, uh, you know, if I can keep a trucker awake on the road or not, hopefully not put him to sleep. I mean, something <laughs> like that mean, means a lot. It really yeah. does. No, absolutely. And, I mean, are any of your books available as audiobooks now? I have uh, three, I believe, available from Books in Motion as audiobooks. Okay. Very I think cool. it's Crota, Darker Than Night, and Breed. Excellent. And is there anything that you're working on currently? Anything that folks can keep an eye out for? I've got a three-book series uh, I'm working on. I've got the first book done. I've actually turned down a couple offers for it. Uh, negotiation. They just didn't give me enough you know, money and time to work and time. The deadlines were the big thing, <laughs> how much time I get to write it. Uh, first one's called Coyote Rage. It's it's set in this world in, 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 in Galanlati, which is uh, the traditional Cherokee world, the sky world that we it all came from. Mm-hmm. And it deals with shapeshifters and animals and it's a lot of the old Native American folklore. That's awesome. Well, that's the nice thing I do with my stories. I've always considered myself more of a storyteller than a writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I try to do the traditional teachings where I'm putting a, a little bit of knowledge, a little bit of sharing the culture in a story. And, you know, that way you're educating people whether they like it or not because, you know, <laughs> you're right. just throwing it out there. Yeah. The nicest compliment I ever had, I had a couple come up to me at a powwow asking me about the, the creature in my first book, Crota. And he said, this is a real creature, right? It's based on, it, it is a creature of Indian legend. And I'm like, well, why? And he said, well, we saw it walking around the Ocala National Forest. I said, you saw the Crota? They're like, well, we didn't actually see it, but we felt its presence. It is a real creature, isn't it? And it really broke my heart to tell them, no, I actually made it up. <laughs> I, but I surrounded it with enough Indian legends, they thought it was real. Yeah. But then I was like, well, there's other things out there you probably felt. It may not have been the Crota, but it might have been a skunk ape or something. I said, you know, trying to cut, not hurt their feelings, but they, they really believed it. Yeah. And then, you know, then they thought it was a real monster of legend. That's that's amazing that you were able to create something that felt that authentic. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, you baffle them with be the BS. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, where can folks connect with you if they want to uh, find out more about you and, and uh, you know, pick up uh, stuff that you've written, uh, maybe say hello, that kind of thing? Where can they get in touch? I do have a uh, website, which is way behind being updated because I don't have a webmaster at the moment. Uh, they can contact me through that. It, it has a link to my email address. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do answer all emails that are sent to me. It may take me a couple of days. I'm the world's worst about putting stuff off. <laughs> I also have a Twitter account. So, and, you know, I always answer people. I mean, I, I get people write me all the time. And, you know, when I'm not too too tired from the cemetery, I will sit down and sit there and answer emails all night. And I appreciate that so much, you know, because when I reached out to you as a fan of your work and wanting to do one of your stories on the Wicked Library, I was just so uh, gratified that you, you took the time to respond and, and got back in touch with me. So thanks so much for for doing that and for letting me share your story with the folks. Well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much, and uh, you have a great week and, and a great weekend. You too, Mr. Dan. Thank you very much. Not a problem. You take care. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyrighted of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. 
The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rosick and performed by Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Dark Mood, Kevin McLeod, or Disparition. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Producer, Daniel Foytek. Executive producer and creator, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 615. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the devil to collect your soul. Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.